Welcome to this week's podcast of Bergen Park Church from Evergreen, Colorado. We hope you enjoy this message, and if you'd like to hear any more or learn more about the church, please visit bergenparkchurch.org. Hello, my name is Jonah Haddad. Welcome back to What We Believe. This is a series that Bergen Park Church is putting together on the doctrinal statement of our church, which is also the doctrinal statement of the evangelical uh, Free Church of America. So today we're going to be looking at the doctrine of God. Now I do want to mention as well that if you have particular questions or comments that you'd like to leave, you can do that um, with the video here. Otherwise, you could reach out to me as well. If you'd like to talk more about any of these doctrinal points, um, please feel free to reach out to Pastor Jason or the elders as well. Any one of us would love to help you talk through any of these issues. So we're looking at the doctrine of God today. And so let me read what our doctrinal statement says about God. We believe in one God, creator of all things, holy, infinitely perfect, and eternally existing in a loving unity of three equally divine persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Having limitless knowledge and sovereign power, God has graciously purposed from eternity to redeem a people for himself and to make all things new for his own glory. So that is what our statement of faith says about God. Now, to understand the doctrine of God, I want to take you back into the Old Testament, to the very first book of Scripture, the book of Genesis. The opening words of Genesis in Hebrew say, Barashit bara Elohim, which translates, in the beginning, God created. In the beginning, God. So these are important words. I want you to think about what these words mean. Because I think these words set a tone for the whole of Scripture, informing the reader that the message of the Bible is centered on God. The whole of religious belief and religious practice centers on God. So these words are a declaration that the Bible is about God, it's about his creation, it's about his purpose, it's about his glory, ultimately. So the doctrine of God has significant bearing on all other doctrines in Scripture. How we understand the nature, the prerogatives, and the activity of God will determine how we understand humanity and God's purposes for human beings. That's why this is such an essential Doctrine. This is why we start with a theology of God. So really, the Bible is theocentric. That is, the Bible is centered on God. Everything we believe as Christians should be theocentric, informed by our understanding of God. So theocentric uh, theology is not intended to denigrate human value or human worth by any means. Rather, the intent is to situate man and God in their proper context, in their proper relationship. So this uh, simple affirmation stands really in stark contrast to the humanistic or man-centered philosophy of our time. Uh, a philosophy really that bids us to, to exchange the truth of God for a lie and to worship the created thing rather than the creator. Furthermore, a biblical theology of God grounded in Scripture can help us prevent the all-too-common temptation to paint God in our own image according to our own desires. 
don't know how many times I've heard people um, say things like this. They'll say, well, the, the God I worship would never condemn people to hell. Or the God I worship, and you could fill in the blank with pretty much anything. People have a lot of opinions about what God should think and who God should be. Fortunately for the church, our opinions about God are subordinate to God's opinions about himself, as revealed, of course, in Scripture. So when we affirm as a church that we believe in one God, we are affirming that the object of our belief and our devotion is someone far greater than ourselves, right? The holy, the perfect, the eternal creator of the universe. When we affirm as a church that we believe in one God, we submit our desires, our will, and our alleged autonomy, and even our activity, our behaviors, to God and his will. This is exactly what our statement of faith affirms. In the beginning, God. Our theology is centered on God. Now, um, I'll have you know that in this brief session, I don't intend to undertake a thorough examination of every word of the doctrinal statement. There's a lot of content here, a lot of words that we could spend some time on. But I really do want to divide our time up uh, between two subjects. I want to look thoroughly at this question of the Trinity, that is the triune God, how God can exist as one, one God in three persons. So we'll spend a little bit of time on that, and then I want to look at God's attributes, God's nature, his, his character. So we'll begin with an examination of this doctrine of uh, the Trinity. Um, and, and understand, too, that the word Trinity is not a word you will find in Scripture. This is a term that theologians use to describe the kind of God that we worship as Christians. So God is one in essence, uh, existing in three persons. So, um, to get there, let's take a look at some scripture, uh, going back to the Old Testament. And keep in mind, too, that the Bible does not explain the logic of the triune God, rather the Bible explains the activity of the triune God. So we're not going to undertake here an explanation of the logic of the Trinity so much as we want to look at how the Trinity functions, how Father, Son, and Spirit work on our behalf for our salvation in Scripture. So we affirm with the words of the Shema from uh, the Old Testament, this would be Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So this is an affirmation of strict monotheism. It's an affirmation of the unity of God. You can also go to Exodus chapter 20, verses 2 and 3, when you read the, the Ten Commandments, the very beginning of the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of slavery, right? Out of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. So again, this is affirming that there is but one God. So Christians affirm really the, the, the uniqueness of God, the unity of God. Yet we affirm that he exists in three persons, as we've mentioned before, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So here's what we are not saying when we talk about the Trinity. And it's under, it really important, I think, here to understand what we are not affirming about God, because it's easy to make some mistakes when describing the triune God. So we are not affirming 
something called modalism. And modalism is this idea that God manifests himself in different ways. So sometimes he's the father, sometimes he's the son, sometimes he's the spirit. That's the idea behind modalism. That is not what scripture affirms. So keep that in mind. Another thing that we are not affirming is polytheism. And this is the idea that there are many gods or multiple gods. This is an idea that's common in Hinduism. It's also an idea that is found even in, in Mormonism. And this idea that there are multiple gods or a plurality of gods. So that is not what Christianity affirms. Rather, we're talking here about a triune God, the Trinity. One God in three persons. That is the biblical response. So again, I think the best way to understand the Trinity is not through trying to explain the logic of the Trinity so much as it is an examination of what Scripture says about the activity of the Trinity. So that's where we want to go. Uh, I think this, uh, this concept of three distinct persons in one essence is difficult precisely because although God is knowable, God is not completely comprehensible. So God has revealed to us only what we need to know and only what we're capable of understanding. So let's turn to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. And this passage of scripture, I think, is one of the best explanations of the work, the activity of our triune God working for our salvation. So let me read the passage for you, and we'll take some time to, to look through um, what this text is saying about the triune God. So I'm reading from the ESV, English Standard Version, and we read, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him... You also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. This is a beautiful example of the work of the triune God in our salvation. So what we notice in this passage is that Father, Son, and Spirit are each mentioned by name, Okay, and each of these distinct persons is actively involved in the accomplishment of our salvation. Furthermore, there is perfect unity, perfect harmony between the activities of the three. So let's begin with the Father. What do we see here about the Father? 
Well, the Father provides spiritual blessing, right? The Father, uh, through the spiritual blessing, he, he is the orchestrator of a salvific plan. That is a plan for our salvation. So he provides spiritual blessing. He chooses his elect, right? And this is just the language of the text. He, he chooses his elect. He adopts people into his family. He predestines according to his sovereign will. He loves us. He acts so that his glorious grace might be praised. He works out all things according to the counsel of his will. So these are just a few examples in this passage of the work of the Father. Then if you look again at the text, you'll see that the Son is also involved. Right? There are a number of things mentioned here. The Son is obedient to the Father, the will of the Father. He gave himself as a sacrifice and payment for our adoption into relationship or sonship with the Father. So he makes adoption possible. We see that in the text. He redeems. That is, he reclaims us or he recovers us. Right? He gives his life in our place. He is used by the Father to make known the plan and activity of the Father. And he provides us with spiritual inheritance. He is the means by which we are brought into that inheritance. So that's the work of the Son. And then we finally see toward the end of the passage the work of the Spirit. He is God's presence with us. He is the sign of God's promise. He is the guarantee that everything God has declared will, in fact, come to pass. And so what's important here is that there is absolutely no conflict between the persons of the triune God. Rather, there is perfect unity unity in love. There's perfect unity in plurality. The activity of any one of the persons of God is the activity of God. So imagine, and it's probably not too hard to imagine this, but imagine two parents in conflict over how to rear their children, how to raise their, their children. Um, this happens a lot, right, in our, in our world. One parent says, okay, you need, to, you need to brush your teeth. The other says, no, don't worry about it. It's not that important. Or one parent says, you've got to get your homework done before, before dinner. The other says, it, it, it can be put off till later. It's not a big deal. Imagine the, the kinds of problems that that causes in a family, in a relationship, when there is not unity in the direction, the purpose, and the vision of what's happening in that family. You can imagine in a company where the upper management, maybe the board of directors, or certain people in the company want the company to move in a certain direction. They want to take it a certain way. But middle management doesn't understand the vision. They don't understand the plan. They have their own ideas for where they want to take this company. And maybe the employees, the, the entry-level positions, uh, people down there, they, they, they don't get it either. And so they're doing things that conflict with what the management desires. Imagine the kind of problems that causes. And yet our triune God does not work that way. Understand that there's perfect harmony in this unity of Father, Son, and Spirit. So what the Father predestines, the Son accomplishes. If the Son saves, the Holy Spirit seals those who are saved. There's no contradiction or conflict between the activity of the persons of the Trinity. So for more on the Trinity, I mean, there are a number of places you can go in Scripture um, to understand uh, the work and activity of our triune God, one God and three persons, a good place to go would be the Gospel of John. 
even from the very beginning of the Gospel of John, we read, in the beginning was the Word, right? The Logos, the Christ, the Messiah. He was with God. He was God. Through him, all things were made. Nothing was made with, essentially without him. He was the creator. So we see this kind of language used from the very beginning of the Gospel of John. The Son and the Father, two persons, the same God. You can go to John chapter 8 for another example. Uh, John 8, verse 58, uh, where Jesus is speaking with the religious leaders of the day, with the Pharisees. And at one point he says, before Abraham was, I am. He's affirming something about himself. He's applying the name of God to himself, right? The name of God. This was a holy name, a sacred name, the Tetragrammaton as it's called, Yahweh, Jehovah. He's saying, I and the Father are one. So we see this kind of language used in the Gospel of John. If you go toward the end of the, of the book, uh, chapters 14 through 16, Jesus introduces us to the paraclete, or paraclete, that, that is the counselor, right? The Holy Spirit who will come and comfort the disciples after Jesus has departed. So again, we see these references to the plurality that exists uh, within the Godhead. Um, 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14, that's another great place to go uh, for information about, or, or at least just for an example of the Trinity in Scripture. This is a common benediction or blessing that we give in the church, right? May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be upon you. So this is an affirmation, again, of the triune God, and there are many other examples so we've looked at the Trinity, we've looked at the activity of the triune God, but I also want to take you to the attributes of God, to understand really who God is, his character. So we have a list here of a number of attributes of God. This is not by any means an exhaustive list, but is an example at least of a few of the attributes that we find in Scripture. So I won't read all the passages, but you can look these up as well. Uh, we have a number of biblical references. But we see that God in his nature, God is eternal, right? He's eternal. He's self-existing according to Colossians chapter 1. God is holy. We read this throughout scripture, particularly in 1 Peter chapter 1. Be holy because I am holy, says God. God is Lord. He's sovereign over all of creation, as we read in Psalm 115. He's self-sufficient. Right, self-existing, he has life in himself. He's all-knowing or omniscient, according to Isaiah 46. God is all-wise, as we read in Romans chapter 11. He's all-powerful, he's faithful, he's loving, he's just, as we read in Deuteronomy 32. And based on some of the previous scriptures we've looked at as well, based on these passages that I presented, we can add a number of other attributes as well. God is, is inscrutable. He's unfathomable. He's unsearchable. He's kind. He's good. He's merciful. He's without equal in glory and in power. He's a God of grace. He sent the Son to die in our place so that we could enjoy unmerited favor of God. God is holy, as we saw before, so perfect in his perfection, so pure in his purity the various prophets, people like Moses or Isaiah or others, could not even stand in his presence. They feared death, standing in the presence of a perfect and holy God. 
You can go to Isaiah uh, chapter 6, when we read about the commissioning of the prophet Isaiah. He's given this vision of heaven. He stands in the presence of God, and he says, Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell among a people of unclean lips. Isaiah realizes that he should be struck down dead because he's standing in the presence of a holy God. This is the kind of God we worship, a perfectly holy God. Now, I want you to understand that God just is this way. That's what it means for God to have the attributes that he has. He simply is this way. He didn't become this way, nor is he subject to some higher moral law. And so I want to spend just a little bit of time on this because this is an issue, a problem in theology that you should be aware of. Um, if you go back into Greek thought, uh, Greek philosophy, um, particularly the philosopher Plato, in one of his dialogues, he has this, what he calls the Euthyphro Dialogue, or the Euthyphro Dilemma. And really the question, the problem that was, was confronted here, or, or examined by the Greek philosophers, the issue is this. Um, is God good because of some higher good to which he is subject? Or is the good subject to the whims and the caprice of God. So essentially, is the good good because of God, or is God good because of the good? Where does God stand in relationship to his attributes? And I do want to just say that this is the wrong way of looking at God. The way the Greeks approached this question, this is not the way the Bible describes God. Because the problem is that if moral law is above God in some way, then God is not God because he's subject to some higher thing, some greater power, some greater thing uh, beyond him. If, however, the moral law is the result of God's whims, God's will, God's desires, then there is no moral standard. There's nothing preventing God from changing his mind. And in some religions, this is a reality. If God chooses to be a loving God one day, then love is a good thing. But if he changes his mind and decides that hatred is good, then hatred's a good thing. But again, this is not the God we read about in Scripture. The God of Scripture does not work this way. His attributes are his attributes precisely because it is in God's nature to be what he is. This is just the way God is. God doesn't choose to be loving, nor is he subject to some higher law of love. Rather, he simply is this way because it's in his nature to be so. It's what he is. And that should be an encouraging thing for us as Christians. So as we consider the rest of this series, keep in mind that everything hinges on who God is. Everything hinges on the centrality of God in Scripture and in our lives. So join me next time for our fourth session of What We Believe.